Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Well, coming up today, we're joined by thriller writer and psychologist A.F. Brady. She has a brand new book out about a sociopath. And since she's a psychologist, she's built a really good character there. Uh, the book is called Once a Liar. But first, I'm pleased to welcome back number one New York Times bestselling author Robin Carr with her new book. It's a standalone book. It's called The View from Almeida Island. And for those of you uh, who aren't familiar with Robin's work, she's the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 60 novels, including the critically acclaimed Virgin River, Thunderpoint and Sullivan's Crossing series. And uh, she's also done standalone work. She's been number one New York Times bestseller 11 times, no less. And uh, again, this book, new one today, is called The View from Almeida, Alameda Island. Robin Carr, Welcome. Glad to have you back with us. It doesn't seem very long since you were with us last time, and here you have a whole new book. You must just keep going, going, going. Yeah, well, that's what I do. I, t- I type. <laughs> right. So um, tell us a little bit about this book. It, it starts out, it's a, a woman who is uh, seeking uh, her own life. She's oppressed by this rather obnoxious husband. I, I got quite irritated with him. I'm surprised. Oh, he's, he's pretty bad. Yeah, I'm surprised she stuck it as long as she did, but uh, give us a synopsis there. Yeah, yeah she's uh, finally claiming her life back after 24 years of marriage, and, and really, uh, a typical of many um, abused women, she wasn't quite sure that she was really abused. She thought he was just cranky, you know, and difficult to please, and that happens a lot. And it's really her grown daughter who points out to her that she remembers from the time she was very little that he did mean things. Right. He pinched and criticized and and was not just difficult to please, but had a really short fuse. And she thought, like many women, that because he wasn't necessarily physically abusive, he was just emotionally and verbally abusive, just emotionally and just yeah, verbally. Just, emotionally, you know. just verbally. And that'll just tear you down and tear you down and, uh, and leave you wondering, what just happened to me? Right. And what happened to the woman I was? Right. You know? So Lauren is your main character. And yes. um, she's going through this evolution. And... Um, how, how did you come up with her character? How did you develop that? Um, sadly, she's fairly typical. Um, she's smart. She's beautiful. She's accomplished. And she has so many qualities that um, you would think, where's her confidence? Why isn't she more uh, uh, worldly wise? Why does she not know that this husband doesn't deserve her? And um, And the answer lies in, she probably won't really realize how much until they're apart for a while and other people point out to her that she was never covering it very well at all. Mm. And her marriage, a lot of people knew her marriage was far from perfect and that her husband was a jerk 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's, as you said, in the right in the beginning is a very common issue. Why do you think women stay so long? Well, in this case, um, she's motivated primarily by her children and their future. And, um, and all he has to do, which is the most abominable thing a man can do, he threatened his own children. You'll never get the children. You'll never get alimony. You'll never get child support. I won't take care of you. I have more power. I will win. You know, all of those things um, tear down her self-esteem and make her afraid, and afraid of her children's future, not just her own, but her children's. Right. So she's 24 years, I think it was, into the marriage, and she decides enough's enough and starts... uh, Well, and her children are through college. Yes. That matters a lot. Yes. And I think that's true of many women, too. Uh, and even men, even I've known men stay in relationships until the kids right. have got through college. So right, um, and I know. know a lot. I've known a lot of couples that I've said, "Oh, they'll never last a day past twenty-five years because when the children <laughs> are gone, right, it will dissolve." And often it's true. Right, right. So she does get herself to a point. She's working up. She's covering her bases, um, and she meets what she later calls in the book uh, a divorce buddy who's an interesting character, landscape architect. So um, how did you come up with him, and why did you think they'd make a great match? Well, what I love about Bo is his um, tenderness and his integrity. He married a woman who had two children, and, um, and he was the stepfather. And their children really needed a good role model, and he had named himself that man when he married their mother. And so uh, he is determined that they may have, I mean, these, these little boys had different fathers, but they would only have one stepfather. And he mirrored Lauren's actions. He, he was determined to stay with them until they were grown. Mm-hmm. And he was a classic abused husband. Yes. His wife didn't hit him, but she... And minimized him, uh, criticized him, didn't support him, took advantage of him, and um, and then and then was uh, did not go quietly. Right, right. And since um, you you bring up his character and how he was marginalized, um, I'm and I've been reading a lot about this. I've seen a lot about it on Twitter lately. How more men are starting to read what were traditionally considered women's books. Are you finding that yourself? Yeah, they. Uh, yes, I am, and I think um, it makes. I think it makes them better men. Yeah, because they. Because why? Yeah, they. They. Um, they need to learn what. Um, where women are coming from. You know, we've. We from the time we were little girls. And I'm a woman of a certain age, so that's some time ago now. We've been taught to anticipate and understand our men. Uh, what about the other way around? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think having characters like this certainly is is a draw. We need to take a very quick break. We're going to be right back with our number one best uh, number one New York Times bestselling author Robin Carr, and her new book is called The View from Alameda Island. We'll talk a little bit about this island when we come back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website 
pdf.org or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Sensory sensitivity, repetitious behavior, lack of eye contact. You can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Why it's actually good for you to suck at something. Award-winning journalist Karen Rinaldi explores how sucking at something rewires the brain and helps with our health and sanity. We'll also hear from Laura Scroff, who first said no to a stranger on the street who asked her for money. But after pausing a moment, she asked one question of the young boy, which led to a life-changing situation for both of them. Catch us live on Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Listeners trust the show and advertisers love the audience. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Some people know a good thing when they hear it. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And it's my pleasure to have Robin Carr again on the show today. She is an award-winning number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 60 novels. And we're talking about the latest today. It's a standalone book, The View from Alameda Island. Robin, why did you decide to write a standalone book? When you're writing series, do you sometimes need a break from them or is it another reason? Well, no, that's exactly the reason. And it's not that I need a break so much as in a perfect world, I get to write one uh, book in a continuing series and one standalone women's fiction. They're not that terribly different, really, because in all of my women's fiction, you'll find some romance, and in all of my romance, you'll find a great deal of women's fiction. And I describe women's fiction as dealing with women's issues. And, of course, um, men have all the same issues, divorce, elderly parents, child raising, um, illness, all sorts of things. But Men typically don't talk about them as much, try to deal with them as much, or men usually say, how about those jets, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then, but, they, but, they, but you find that they need, they need this discussion just as much, and, um, and if they're going through a divorce, they're just verbal. Right. Um, yes, I know somebody who's <laughs> going through one right now, and... Uh... It's very verbal. Yeah. Um, so I want to um, talk about Alameda Island because often authors will uh, take a real place and then they'll fictionalize it. Tell us about Alameda Island in this case. Alameda Island is uh, the most charming little little place. It's, um, it's real close to Oakland and San Francisco and Berkeley. In fact, um, a lot of young professionals live there because they want to raise their families in a quiet, clean, you know, real civilized place, but, uh, and not in a big city, but they commute to San Francisco or Oakland to work. And it's a quick commute. It's not, it's not a real long one. And they can get on the ferry or BART and get there quickly. And the island is, um, is old. It's been around for a long time. Many of the houses were built in the 1900s. And, um, and so, and they're rent, remodeled and renovated many times. And it's full of um, 
wonderful little shops and restaurants and pubs and bookstores and everything, everything you could want. And a lot of the people on the island walk everywhere. And, uh, and so like you'll see, you know, if you have a front porch, you'll be waving at your neighbors all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and if you want a cup of coffee or a, a glass of wine, you can walk down to the pub or restaurant and um, and have have your meal. When I went out there to promote this book, um, we had dinner at one of their favorite hangouts, walked a half a block to the bookstore, and then got in the car and drove four blocks to a house for a party. I, it was great. I bet it, they love that you wrote about them, that oh, island. Oh, they do. And they're so, you know, of everything, um, Alameda's so darn cute, you know? The whole island is cute. And then, of course, the beach is not far away. It's right down the road. Yeah, I haven't been there, but I'm going to put it on my list based on on this. (laughs) Yes, yes, Um, do. I've heard you say, Robin, that um, it's important to you that when people have read your book that they've been on a good journey with you, but they leave feeling happy. And so location, I imagine, is, is critical to your storytelling. It is, and it has to fit the characters, and I'll tell you how this fits. Lauren had a big house uh, somewhere up north in one of the big cities like Mill Valley, where it's a very affluent place, and the um, average real estate is quite high. And, um, and she chose for her transition um, a place that was uh, uh, neighborly and older and more settled, and she bought herself a 100-year-old house that um, had just had three bedrooms, like a, like a grown-up dollhouse, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, quaint, with personality. And her, her favorite part was that she thought she might park her car and maybe never use it again. <laughs> it would she walks nice. down Park Street, which is their central street, and she gets her cup of coffee and buys her fresh fruits and vegetables and looks at art and... Um, meets a, a friend there for a glass of, uh, at one of the pubs for a glass of wine, and it's perfect for her. She feels so much less alone in a place like that. Right, right. I remember going to the Silly Isles a number of years ago off the southern coast of England, in between England and France, uh, they're British, and um, there are no cars allowed on them. And I, you, you go around in golf cart or the little buzz, which is, a little bit bigger than a golf cart if you want yeah. to get anywhere. And I just, I love that. Um, so I want to, let's switch tacks here and let's talk about sex scenes because I had an interesting interview with you and your daughter and she said it's excruciating reading when mom writes uh, sex scenes for her books. You so, would think, I, I said to her, think about how it is knowing your 16-year-old daughter is having sex. I mean, you want to talk excruciating? Please. <laughs> so, no sympathy to her. <laughs> no. <laughs> and she, I mean, she's grown up now. Um, but one of the things that I, I thought was a, a wonderful testament to you, Robin, um, as a writer and as a mother, is that uh, somebody asked your daughter if she bragged about you, and she said no. She feels very humbled by your accomplishments. Uh, you didn't get your first number, your, your first New York Times bestseller until she was, I think, about 30. Um, and so she said it's it's very humbling because she's always known you just to work, 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 and put one foot in front of the other. 
I did do that. I can't I can't explain what kept me going either. I sold my first book in 78 and had my first bestseller in 2008. So it was not for me a quick process. Mm-hmm. Um and I yes, I did. I I made peace with the fact that I wasn't a huge success a long time ago and decided if I'm still writing without being a huge success then why am I doing it? And the why is, it's very satisfying. And it's especially satisfying when I have readers and when the readers tell me that the book changed their lives in some way, even if it's a very small way. And I've said before, um, people don't write to me and say, oh my gosh, what a good writer you are. I mean, at least not very often. What they do write to me and say, things like, I lost my mother last year, and we used to read your books together. Or, my baby died, and I know just how that character felt. And that, and what that tells me is that readers are finding a, a safe place to deal with emotions that they're stuck with. Yes. They're uh, hopefully real-life situations that get resolved in, um, in a kind and, and intelligent manner. Yes, and there's that sense of connection between reader and author, which, um, you know, I think kind of cements that, hey, this is a great book feeling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So going back to the sex scenes, you're not getting out of that that easily. Um, uh-huh. Oh, great. <laughs> how difficult is it for you to actually write them? Is it difficult at all? It's very difficult. Uh, it's really, really hard. Uh, and I don't... Um, and I can't, I mean, I, I read some books that have wonderful erotic sex scenes, and of course mine are not necessarily very erotic. They're, um, I hope they're loving and tender and, um, and, and kind-hearted and, uh, and also um, very, very romantic. Mm. But it's, the, it's, the import, it's one of the most important parts of an adult relationship, and it really can't be ignored. Right. And do you find some readers, because I have a friend who uh, writes urban fantasy, and she does have a lot of quite graphic um, sex scenes in her books. I can't read them because I know she's written them. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and, and her husband once told me that he's her um, experimenter, her field researcher, so that, that sealed the deal there. It's like, okay, That's I, it. I, I'm not, <laughs> not reading any more of those. Thank you very much. Uh, but she's often said that some readers will come at her and say there's too much and others will say there's not enough. I mean, it's, you know, a balance there you have to find that works for you and, and your, your books. Right. Well, I get a big kick out of the readers who write and say, I'm never buying another one of your books because of those graphic sex scenes. And, and it's too bad because your writing is so excellent. And I think to myself, did it ever occur to you to skip the sex scenes? <laughs> right. I mean, you could just page right by them. Right. You'll still get the gist of the rest of the story. Right, <laughs> right. So um, what did you learn writing this book? I think, you know, with each book, each separate project, there's something that we take away from it. What have you taken away from uh, writing The View from Alameda Island? Well, one of the big things that happens in, um, in a divorce situation, especially in a marriage of many years, is that everybody has an opinion and a judgment and down to your closest friends and relatives. Some will say, well, it's about damn time. And others will say, how could you? 
And children, adult children, will often take opposite sides during their parents' divorce. And not only did I see that in my, in my research, but in talking to people who'd been through it, I am amazed at how often the adult children are on opposite sides. Mm. One is taking care of mom and watching out for her and hoping she'll be okay, and the other one is saying, oh, I'm so worried about Dad. He's gotten so thin, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, it's real hard for people to deal with, especially if you're leaving an abusive relationship or one where you've been betrayed over and over, and one of your beloved children says, but poor Dad, I just want him to be happy. Mm-hmm. It is, and difficult. you just want to kill him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is difficult. Uh, I, you know, I was older when my parents divorced, but um, and luckily I didn't have to go through. They didn't badmouth each other, and uh, there was a clear line in the sand <laughs> as far as things went at one point. So, um, so, what would you like to leave our listeners with today, Robin? It's always so fun talking with you. Well, you know. I think the thing that I always like to read, leave, leave readers with is, um, well, it's a quote from one of my favorite movies, and I can't remember the title, but you'll remember it. Um, it's about the hotel, the most beloved something hotel. Uh, the quote is, everything will be all right in the end, mm. and if it is not yet all right, it's not yet the end. I love that. I love that. I remember that. Thank you, Robin, for uh, being with us today. Really appreciate it. It's great fun. Thanks for having me. And again, my guest, Robin Carr. You can find out much more about Robin at robincarr.com and her new book, The View from Alameda Island. And we will be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Let's see if I... I guess that... (sighs) This just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Oh, yeah, that could work. 
Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping Paws care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wild life. No experience necessary. All training is provided. Visit paws.org or call 425-787-2500. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to conversationslive.net. That's conversationslive.net today. Alternative Talk 1150 online at 1150kknw.com. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And coming up next, I'll be talking with A.F. Brady. Uh, she is the author of Once a Liar, just released. She's a New York State licensed mental health counselor and psychotherapist. She holds a bachelor's in psychology and two masters in psycho- psychological counseling. And uh, she lives in uh, New York with her family, and she's joining us today to talk about this. But also, uh, May is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, and so uh, we're going to talk a little bit at the end about mental health awareness and uh, what that means from uh, A.F. Brady's point of view. A.F. Brady, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And on your book, it's A.F. Brady, but we're going to call you Alex because it's kind of awkward saying A.F. So um, I appreciate you joining us today. Um, This is, uh, is this your second book, Alex? Yes, it is. This is my second. My first book, The Blind, came out uh, in September of 2017. Um, And this is, they're both standalones, but both psychological suspense novels. Right. And so... um, J.T. Allison blurbed on the front of the book here, and, and J.T.'s been on the show uh, before. She says it sizzles with sinister madness and incessant tension right to the last page, which is uh, echoes a lot of things that uh, a lot of the reviewers have said, too. Um, so let's begin with your um, working in mental health. Had you always wanted to write? Um, yeah. You know, I think I had I had two passions growing up. One of them was was counseling and therapy and taking care of people, um, and another one of them was writing, which I did very informally for sort of my whole life. I've always putting, been putting pen to paper, but I never thought to submit anything for publication or to try to write books or do anything bigger than just rant into my computer in the evening. <laughs> and, and so I read that you wrote your first book while you were pregnant and, and in bed a lot of the time. <laughs> um, yeah, both of them, both books. Yeah, I had, um, it, was, it was interesting. I had a kid in 2016, a book in 17, a kid in 18, and a book in 19. So I guess I'm due another kid, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> I can't <laughs> always predict that one. 
Um, so tell us a little bit about this book because your your main character begins with him and um, lots of questions. I have a lot of questions about uh, Peter Crane, your main character. Um, Absolutely. But um, he's yeah. a, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Well, he, he's a he's a criminal defense attorney um, he, in Manhattan. He's hell bent on maintaining his pristine appearance and career status and. You know, he's an excellent defense attorney and uh, moral flexibility and an incapacity for empathy and remorse uh, tend to make him very well suited to do the business of defending the indefensible. Um, And when the tables turn and he is accused of brutally murdering his ex-mistress, who just so happens to be the daughter of his professional rival, um, all the evidence does point to Peter. Uh, So the book kind of Follows, will he be able to prove that his uh, cold, calculating exterior is not really that of a killer, maybe just a not-such-a-great guy? And uh, can he truly change himself, or is he too far gone? Mm. Good question. And so he is basically a sociopath. And so, and I think, if I'm right, I didn't read the first book, but he, I think you brought your psychological background into the first book, too. Is that correct? Very much so, yes. <clears throat> yeah. And so... Um, was it inevitable for you when you were writing that you, you'd, ha- you'd build a character like this? Yeah, you know what? Yes, I think it was because so much, so much of what I've read um, and the movies that I've seen and so much of the media is from the perspective of people who have been victimized by sociopaths. And I wanted to sort of turn that around a little bit and get into the mind of a sociopath, much, much like... Brett Easton Ellis did years ago with, with American Psycho. Um, I just wanted to, you know, sort of sit inside of his head for a while and wiggle around in there, mm-hmm. see what it, it was like. I hope it didn't do you permanent damage. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's to be determined. <laughs> so um, well, so let's, let me ask you this question, because I've asked a lot of psychiatrists and even forensic psychiatrists the same question, and I, I tend to get slightly different answers. What is the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath? Um, yeah, you're, you're going to get different answers on that one. They're, first of all, neither of those are, are clinical terms. Um, they're both uh, words that we use sort of in, in colloquial ways. Um, but a sociopath is, is generally understood to be somebody suffering from antisocial personality disorder. Um, and it's, it's a diagnosable condition. And there's, there's research that suggests that psychopathy or being a socio, being a psychopath is, is different to antisocial personality disorder, but, you know, lots of overlap and lots of similarities. Um, it's also generally understood that a sociopath is more um, may, maybe peaceful and a, a psychopath is the more violent of the two personalities. But generally, they're, they're, I, I use them pretty interchangeably, and I think that there are going to be a lot of new developments in the research to find, you know, how can we define the differences between the two and <laughs> who's more dangerous, I suppose. Right, uh, but, right. Yeah, they're both, they're both certainly marked by um, no regard for the feelings or experiences of others, a total lack of remorse and empathy, sort of an inability to experience emotions the way that uh, the rest of us do. Um, their, their drives and goals are based in personal gratification, uh, really really just not caring about other people. And it's, it's not a choice not to care. It's more an inability to care. Mm-hmm. So it's not being a jerk. It's, not, it, it's missing a chip, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. 
Right, right. I've read also that they're very good, for the most part, at mimicking emotions. And that's, yeah. that's how they kind of walk, awa- walk among us, if you will, without recognition. Absolutely. And, and can be incredibly charming because they've learned that, you know, charm is, a, is an important tool in manipulation and manipulation is an important tool in achieving the success that they are so often after, whatever the success may be, whether it's just finding out how to get dinner tonight or success of running major companies. Right, right. And we've certainly seen many in major companies lately. So, yes, <laughs> so um, going back to Peter Crane then, um, you decide to make him a sociopath. So um, it's hard to read a book all the way through if you don't, if the, the leading character doesn't have some kind of something about him that draws people to him. So explain to us how you made him uh, a character that we'd stick with through the book. I think um, instead of, instead of because I, I generally look for characters that can be sympathetic and that can be loved and that you can, you can root for them or feel good about them. And I wanted to do the exact opposite because I am a, forgive me, I know you're in Washington State, but I am a diehard Yankee fan. And as much as I love the Yankees, I hate the Red Sox. <laughs> right. And that's what I was doing here. And I want to see everything that happens to them, and I watch all of their games because I would love to watch them lose. And it's the same thing with Peter. Is As much as I would love to love him, instead I really love to hate him. And that's what drives the reader to get through. And I find that... The, the way that the, the readers have been responding to me is that they really, really love to hate him and are flying through the book hoping something terrible happens. Mm. Yes, I, yes, a good way of putting that. And so when the book opens, um, he's at the funeral of his ex-wife. And it's the first couple of pages. I'm not spoiling anything here. Um, but his son very quickly... Um, in his in, in his speech gives um, gives an idea of what Peter Crane's about. Yeah, um, absent, heartless, cold, calculating, but very very good at his job. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to continue talking with my guest here, A.F. Brady. Her new book is called Once a Liar, and you are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We'll be right back. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Academy of Canine Behavior in Bothell, we cover the world of animals. This week, May 12th, it's a Best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen and his sister Linda, also a best practitioner in the studio. Together, they can help you and or your animal friends with emotional, behavioral, or physical problems. So plan to give us a call for your free remote treatments. On Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. 
next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Why it's actually good for you to suck at something. Award-winning journalist Karen Rinaldi explores how sucking at something rewires the brain and helps with our health and sanity. We'll also hear from Laura Scroff, who first said no to a stranger on the street who asked her for money. But after pausing a moment, she asked one question of the young boy, which led to a life-changing situation for both of them. Catch us live on Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Live well and live strong. Reach her great audience and advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. And welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And I'm talking with psychotherapist and author, thriller author, A.F. Brady. Her new book is called Once a Liar. And uh, on the question the question on the front of the book is, he's guilty of many things, but is murder one of them? And you're going to have to read the book to find out because we're not giving any spoilers away today. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, I, location because I always think location is a very important part of uh, a story. Alex, and you set your book in Manhattan. Why did you choose Manhattan? Um, Well, both of my books uh, that have been published are in Manhattan, and it's because I'm from Manhattan, and I know it inside and out, backwards and forwards, so I didn't have I saved myself some research on that one. Um, And also, it's just the kind of city that can stand up to and house pretty much any kind of character, no matter what you bring into that city. That city can deal with everything that you throw at it. So if you come in with a really high-powered attorney who is misbehaving left and right, New York City is a perfect backdrop for that. Mm. And yes, because people would just shrug their shoulders and walk on. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I saw you yesterday. I'll see another one of you tomorrow. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about writing process because I always am fascinated by people's writing progress. I talked with um, oh, who, what's his name? Uh, it's going to slip my mind, so I won't mention it. But I talked with somebody a couple of weeks ago, uh, Greg Isles, <laughs> very well known. But he said, "Oh, who cares about process?" But um, and and so you know he has his own process for sure. But but what? How how does this work for you? Um, well, I'm, I'm sort of partially a seat of my pants and partially a planner in, in most regards in my life. I'm an extremely planning, organized sort of person. But when it comes to writing, I have sketchy ideas, and then I sit down, and some strange other being takes over me, and my fingers write stuff that I didn't really think I was going to write. Um, and then I end up rereading it at the end of the day, and I wow, I can't, that's awesome. What a good idea. But I didn't really know that I was writing it. So it's a little out of body. Right. crazy. Right. So do you ever have times when you sit down and write and at the end of the day you go, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with most, most often. And then I get very attached to something that I wrote. And it's, it's only in like the second round of edits that I sit there and I say, look, that's, that's terrible. And you're yeah. forcing this to fit somewhere and it doesn't. You've got to just delete it or cut and paste it into a... I always have another document while I'm writing that's referred to as the holding cell. Oh, and that's, that's where one. I put the big blurbs that I, I thought I could use but turn out to not really work. That's a good one. Uh, the holding cell. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that from you if that's okay. Please do. <laughs> 
Um, so, yeah, for non-writers, I mean, there's a there's a very common saying amongst editors, it's kill your darlings. If we are married to a phrase or a paragraph or a certain thing and we can't seem to make it work, it's because it shouldn't be there, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> and so did you learn that the hard way or the easy way? Um, I, I learned that a combination of the two. I have to learn things a few times for them to really, really get through. Um, but with with Once a Liar, it's a, it's a switch from, from then from now scenes to then scenes, um, and it was it was a strange adventure on this one because I wrote all of now, and then I wrote all of then, and then I shuffled it together. Okay, I I wondered. Um, yeah, I've often asked people how they do that if they write it uh, as it comes to them, as it, as it appears in the book, and you're the first person who's actually said they write it separately. I didn't intend to do it that way. I actually wrote the, an entire book as if it were all going to just be now. Yeah. Um, and then I realized, you know, there's so much backstory that needs to be a part of this that I did, um, I did the then scenes to put it in, which really helped to drive the suspense and was, was much richer than leaving it just in nows. Um, and so the first scene of the nows is the day after the last scene of the thens. Okay. Okay. So it kind of all comes together in a large circle. <laughs> it makes sense to me. Trust me, it makes sense Thank to me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it needs to. It's, it's your process. But um, so is there a particular scene that you find more difficult to write? Uh, are there particular scenes that you really uh, don't like writing or absolutely love to write? Um, well, in, in both of my books, I, I killed people that I really, really liked. Um, and in writing it and in rereading it afterwards, I've, I've cried a number of times, but it, it needed to happen. Um, I really enjoy writing the, the sort of comeuppance scenes, you know, when, when somebody gets theirs. I really, really, really enjoy writing that. And I'm often smacking the keys very hard and laughing maniacally. And <laughs> <laughs> this is why I write alone <laughs> behind closed doors. In a soundproof room. <laughs> exactly. Far away from children and small animals. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoy the whole thing. But when something comes together or if I get an ooh, 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 better idea, better idea, then I'm just so excited. And, you know, all other, all other necessities go to the wayside and I just sit there for hours. And it's, it's so much fun. I just love writing. Mm. How important are names uh, in your book? Um, I, I talked to somebody a little while ago who'd written the whole book and still had not decided on a, an official name. He kept flip-flopping backwards and forwards between two names. <laughs> um, I, I feel that names are, are very important, but there are also, you know, in some cases it needs to be a quick one-syllable name so that it's easy to say. In, in, other, in other places I've got names in my head that are just inherently creepy or inherently powerful and I want to make sure that the name has the right um the right association you know what I mean like I've got in in the one that I'm currently writing right now I've got this character who I absolutely love and she is just super super badass and her name is Lucy and that just works so much for me Mm. for her to be this powerful sort of you know doesn't take any nonsense from anyone and and Lucy could could it's the only name that she could have right so if you were casting um, a Hollywood star in the role of Peter Crane, do you have an image of who that would be? Um, I can do, I, I, I think of like a John Hamm um, oh, yeah. or, 
uh, a Tom Hardy who can play like villains that way, but also have just incredible presence and can just act with their face and they don't need to say everything because that's a big thing for me for them for him to just be able to portray stuff without needing to to say a lot of things and I think that those two guys would be pretty good in this one yeah I I'd agree with you on that very much so um so I read that you don't um you don't really write at a desk you've got kids so you write wherever you can uh, what how does that work for you how do you fit it into a day You're um <laughs> Well, these days, I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a one-year-old, so uh, mercifully they still nap. So I try to get as much writing as I can. My, my elder child is in, is in school, so my daughter, the younger one, uh, she naps in the morning while he's at school. So that two kids, you know, gone so I can sit and write in the morning because I'm smarter in the morning with, without any doubt than I am later in the day. Um, so I try to get as much done then. And I've even started, oh, and it's horrible, waking up before them, to do the work. Mm-hmm. I, I don't recommend that. <laughs> You're not a morning person. I've become one, you know, against my will. These are the hours that I used to be still up, and now I am up again. Yeah. It's funny, you know, uh, one of my most creative times ever is when I've got jet lag. Um, so, you know, when I've gone back to England for six, seven, eight weeks at a time, and I've really got into the time zone there, and then I come back here, and I'm waking up at 2.30 and 3 o'clock. Yeah. And I'm wide awake. And mm-hmm. no, of course, nobody else is. <laughs> and so I, I find it's a really creative time for me. Um, but of course, as the weeks go on, it gets later and I get up later and later in the morning. Yeah, I love I love writing on international flights because you don't have to do anything. You, everything is taken care of for you. You're supposed to sit down. You're supposed to not move. And, you know, if you need a, a, a cocktail or, you know, a tissue, you just raise your hand and it appears before you. It's, it's it the best. Yeah. That, I get lots of work done in those environments. So this is your second book. Um, Once a Liar is your second book. Um, what did you learn from writing the first book that you tried to incorporate into this? Because I think as we grow and evolve, uh, as, as a writer, we do things a little differently maybe. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think from um, I wrote I wrote the blind, not realizing how to write for an audience. So I wrote for myself more than anything else. And in the editing process, it, it you know developed into a book written, you know, for me, for myself, for my audience, for people in particular. And I learned how to sort of learn how to get out of my own head because I would write a lot knowing what I meant. Um, but it wasn't necessarily coming across, and so I learned how to do that much better. I also learned um, I was I was a little bit not disappointed, let's say, but maybe err about uh, the number of hints that I dropped in the first one. Oh. so I I I was very careful on on hints in the second one because I I, I love I love people. Figuring it out, whenever they figure it out, because you figure it out on the last page, you figure it out on the first page, whatever it is, there's always that feeling of like, oh, I figured it out. Um, so it's a good feeling whenever it happens. But, you know, I'd like, I'd like it to be something where people can feel more um, shocked. So I, I put a little bit more of a shock factor into this one. Now, of course, I'm going to get an email from a listener saying, well, I wasn't shocked at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you just figure the way something's going and it may or may not end up that way. Anyway, exactly. So. You know, stick your finger in your ears and hope and hope. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about dialogue because that's always really important to um, a good flow in, in a story. How do you write your dialogue? Um, I do a lot of very serious rapid-fire writing. Um just blasting it out, and, and then I, I, I find myself going back and having to delete a couple of exchanges because I, I, I base it very, very much on reality where people will stop and say, what do you mean? And then the other person will respond by repeating themselves. And so I write that way, and then I have to go and delete all the what do you mean because it's ridiculously repetitive. <laughs> right. right. Um, and then I add in the he said, she said, she leaned back and pondered before she responded get out, you know, <laughs> so I right. have to do it that way. Right, but that, that's what makes it believable, though, starting in that place of reality and then paring it down. <laughs> right, exactly. It's just, and, and uh, there's a lot of stream of consciousness that I do, and I, I, I tend to, I tend to um, throw in a number of, of profanities just to put my point across and then realize that that's a pretty cheap way of getting your point across. Mm. So um, I've, I've jumped into the thesaurus here and there. To help me out on uh, what's another what's another word to use. So as we're as we start writing a book, um, if we make it known to people, there's you know always pe- there are always people out there who want to give us advice. Have you received a, a really good piece of advice that you carry with you? Um, I, at the time that I heard it, uh, and it was from my agent, and at the time that I heard the advice, I thought it was preposterous. Um, but now it's the best piece of advice I've gotten. She's like, if you want to write a book, you have to give it a beginning a middle, and an end. Yeah, and so simple, right? <laughs> it's unbelievably simple. And I said, well, what else would I do? And then I looked at the draft that I had just given her, and I was like, oh, you know what? I don't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I sort of have a middle, and I have an end, but that's it. Right, right. <laughs> and um, so it ended up being a really, really great piece of advice. And also, if, you, if you're reading, and, and a number of people have given me this piece, if you're, every single chapter has to be doing something. It needs to be here for a reason. And I'm, I'm, I'm from a talking profession, you know, or, and a listening profession. So I want all of the details. I want to hear all of the background information. How did you get here? You know, the, the journey from where somebody started to where they ended up is what I'm most interested in as a therapist. And so I ended up writing chapters that were just droning background information and she's like we are not going anywhere with this chapter <laughs> what is this here for and i said well background isn't that important she's like look two two sentences go a long way right you do not need a chapter about that time she was on a trampoline with her dog well i i read here you have a very interesting bedside table uh, of books here i read that you um this was a, an interview you did with heather Gudenkauf. i think she's been on the show a couple of times uh, you you had on your bedside table the DSMV desk reference, which of course is for your medical work, <laughs> and Sid Field's screenplay, The Foundations of Screenwriting, <laughs> yep. and then Michelle Obama's Unbecoming. But um, I think screenplay writing really teaches you to make stuff move forward because you have such a limited amount of time there, and every single every single thing that's uttered has to move that story forward. So. At- Absolutely, yeah. and that, that was such a great lesson to read those books. And novel writing and screenplay writing are such different animals, but learning how to do one really, really informs how to do the other one. Right, right. 
Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, I, I could talk with you for another hour here, but we've, we're out of time. And I wanted just to touch very quickly, since you are a, a psychotherapist and counsellor and have been for many years, it is ma- uh, May is month, uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. Yes. That's, that was a mouthful. Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, it's just staggering to see the statistics around mental health and how many yes. people really need help and are not getting it because of stigma or because of lack of medical resources. So what do you want to say to us about this Awareness Month? Well, I think that awareness is the the key term there, is that in order to limit our stigmas, we need to challenge ourselves. We need to challenge what it is that we think we know about mental illness, and we need to educate ourselves. Um, And that is a free thing that every single one of us can do. We can uh, commit to making an effort, to learning more about the actual experience of having a mental illness, what it looks like, what it sounds like. We can decide that we don't necessarily want to be a part of stigmatizing people who are going through this. And once we start educating ourselves, we can educate others, we can advocate, we can go out there and we can be the change that we want to see in the world. Thank you, Gandhi. Um, And we can help in in so many ways where it feels like we're all tied up in bureaucratic red tape with the way that we can't change the system. The system is based on people and their education, and we can get out there, we can learn. And anybody who's interested in in learning and and wants to know where to start, um, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, get on their website. It is a very, very easy-to-understand place where you can start to educate yourself about what mental illness and mental wellness are like and how you can help just just by learning a little bit. Yeah. Alex, thank you so much. I I read a statistic that said only 41% of adults in the U.S. with a mental health condition received mental health services in the past year, which is just staggering. It's devastating. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks very much. I appreciate uh, you being with us today, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. uh, And Alex's book is called Once a Liar. It's under A.F. Brady. And you can find out more about Alex and her work at afbrady.com. And that brings us right to the end of today's show. We have to rush out of here. Uh, So we'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. You can find out more about us at conversationslive.net. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.